Amen. Thank you, worship team. And uh, to I just actually want to point out, uh, kids right now, uh, we've got ages three to grade five have uh, a lot, I see they've all headed off down to, we have a program designed just for them that's happening downstairs. And I want to draw attention to that because I want to celebrate and thank the volunteers we have running those programs because uh, I wonder here how many of you, whether it's just a distant memory or you're currently living in it, how chaotic a 10-year-old can be. Now, how about four 10-year-olds plus a few five-year-olds, seven, eight, nine, and between, all in between, some age threes and fours in there? And so they're wrangling that, but they have a passion to actually also help these kids understand the Bible, understand the Creator God who loves them, and just have a fun experience time. So that's something like a Sunday morning experience of coming to worship together, to gather, uh, feels good in their hearts and in their minds and in their lives. So they're doing that, and we've got a a team of dedicated like three leaders who do that on a weekly rotation with a few helpers, and this morning too, we've had a few pinch hitters have jumped in and just said, okay, that's fine, I can help out again after three weeks in a row, as well as in our nursery. So I think they deserve a hand, and this is a ministry that needs prayer and support and bolstering up too. And that is a bit of the thematic topic for this morning, but actually, I want to first start off by talking about gardening. Right, I know, some of you are like, why is Grant talking about gardening? Uh, because one of the things that my wife and I are, uh, that we've kind of gotten to really experience as a blessing where we're living is we have access to an amazing backyard. And over the years, we've been able to build up some pretty solid garden boxes and a pretty awesome veggie garden. So tomatoes and peppers and kind of whatever we go to Devon Nurseries and find like, that looks fun to grow, that looks disgusting, but I want to try to grow in that thing. Uh, We've had a lot of failures over the years, but we've had a lot of fun. And so here's the thing. My wife really likes gardening. She likes the process of cultivating and weeding. And I actually don't like that. I'm not a green thumb. Uh, Is there anyone here who has that? Like, they just know they can talk to the plants and feel. They know how they're doing. You wake up in the morning and say, hey, tomatoes. No one here like that? I know there's some gardeners. We got some. I like the science behind it. I like the chemicals, figuring out what's going on with the soil. I like the engineering, building garden boxes, irrigation, automating everything. That gets me excited. I also really like shopping. And for flowers, it's fun, because there's some of them, and they're tricky, right? It's like, this one's only a buck for six little ones, right? It's like, oh, I could buy 20 of those times six is like this. So you just keep buying more and more, and you get all these little flowers, and they're annuals, though, so they're cheap, and they look really pretty, and then they die. And uh, I just keep finding, like, my favorite ones are the ones that look like they're fuzzy. I call them fire flowers. I think they're celosias. Man, we don't have many gardeners in here. No one's correcting me. I like buying the flowers, and I like watching my wife take care of them. But I thought maybe one time, I I got this idea where I said, I want to try to try to keep one of these things going, right? They're annuals, they grow, they die. I wonder if I can, like, kind of genetically master this thing a bit. And so I started researching and figured out how to do the soil stuff to delay seeding. Uh, you got to keep, uh, keep nurturing it and pruning it in the right way. So I took this marigold, and a big hardy one, right? And I was like, let's keep this thing going. I just had it thriving all year long. Got cooler, so I had to bring it inside, pulled it out, put it in a pot, got some lights on it, and I just kept this thing going and going and going year after year. And it's this kind of like haggard bush-looking thing now. 
the few flowers and like big gross sticks, but it took a lot of effort because I just wanted to try, it's gone now. Uh, I wanted to see what I could do with it, right? But then the rest of the garden took a bit of a toll. Leslie was out on her own taking care of whatever else. I didn't buy many flowers the years after that, just pouring everything into nutrients and new clippers and shears because again, I like buying stuff, right? Amazon Prime Day just came up, nice stainless steel shears. I can see you guys are glazing over, you're not gardeners. <laughs> And for the few of you who maybe, maybe you are gardeners and you're like, this is ridiculous. I even see Karen's looking at me like, there's no way. You called my bluff. I didn't actually do that. I don't know if it's possible. Maybe it is. But if you are a bit of a gardener, you're thinking, that's the most ridiculous use of your time. Why would you do that? Because I was even actively standing in the way of what this flower is designed to do is go through a life cycle, plant seeds, and then produce bigger crops and continue on and continue on. Uh, I did think... I should use an example about something like my vehicles, because I do that with vehicles. I buy old garbage vehicles that are rusting to pieces, and I say, but I can fix them. I can keep them going. When in reality, I should have bought a Prius 10 years ago and saved thousands of dollars and just been comfortable with air conditioning running all the time. It just felt too close to home. So I'm not going to talk about that anymore. But this is why it kind of matters. Ridiculous story sounds ridiculous when you apply it to gardening, feels ridiculous when you apply it to the stuff you own and you, you just don't make the wise decisions. We often get into a bit of a trap where we focus on the status quo, where we're at, what we need, what makes sense for comfort around us, and we forget the fact that we actually need to spend a lot of our time in any context, whether it's in our jobs, in our personal lives, in our families, at home, and especially in our faith, to put a disproportionate amount of effort and time towards what's coming next, what's coming up, what's growing after us. And so this morning, what we're actually going to be, we, we spent some time being part of a commitment where we saw parents committing to raising their kids to uh, model and also lead their children, pointing them towards Jesus and pointing them towards the faith. We entered into that commitment as well. We're actually going to be spending uh, the next couple weeks here doing a bit of a series about what it looks like in our church and in our city to model that, to live out that aspect of faith and discipleship, and to take a look at God's design for how we pour into the next generation after us, how we pour into the stuff coming up, and how we help the gospel spread beyond just where we're at right now. Uh, and the thing is, this is it's a pretty massive topic, it's a pretty big thing, and it can feel bizarre, it can feel ridiculous, it can feel challenging, because I love this, um, one youth worker I heard say at a conference, working with the next generation is inefficient, noisy, and you're unlikely to ever benefit from the fruits of your labor. But that's because the efforts you pour in are not for you, and they're often not even just for them. It's actually for the generation that they then get to impact. See, the work and actions we take matter so much more, not for us, or they shouldn't be mattering for us as much as the next generation and the generation after that. C.S. Lewis said, children are not a distraction from more important work. They are the most important work. Right? It's good. Children are the future. And maybe I'm setting up this morning and you're thinking in your heads a little bit like, I totally agree. I'm, I'm right there with you. Children are the future. Like, that's my motto. I've got the bumper sticker for it. And, and it's easy to say children are the future, right? Because they, they're going to outlive you. They're going to outlast you. But then hand them a microphone and suddenly you change your tone a bit. Children are the future until it comes time for them to drive your car. Children are the future until they get to vote, right? 
or, you know, children of the future, but do our, like, our life's mottos and our vision and mission and values, like, as our church, do they point towards that as a real reality? Or maybe we can even just be blunt. Maybe you spent some time with children and youth, like I have, and you take a look a little bit at middle schoolers, and you're like, that's not the future. That's terrifying. As you want to put the guards up and say, we'll skip this one and, and wait for the next ones coming up. They're innocent still. But regardless, they'll outlive us. So mechanically, statistically, they are the future. And here's what we need to learn this morning. We have a tendency to expect that if we raise the next generation right, they'll be just like us. And we're pretty good, right? We've got it all together. So if we just keep replicating it, it's fine. I want to check out what happened in the Old Testament uh, we're going to be looking at a passage in the book of Judges. But just to catch you up on the big picture of the Old Testament of the Bible, it, it big picture follows the Israelites, God's chosen people. It follows, it goes from God creating to then working in the lives of and appointing some people uh, who he then turns into the nation of Israel. And then they find themselves, during a famine, they find themselves seeking refuge in Egypt, where they then become enslaved in the nation of Egypt, the Israelite people, for 430 years. And then this man Moses comes along. God raises him up and uses Moses to lead them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into their own land and own place. That's the big picture of what's happening. And so what's happened is you have this whole generation of people who lived through slavery. They lived through being oppressed. They lived through being in a land that wasn't theirs. And then God comes along and through miraculous and incredible efforts and the leading of a man named Moses, they saw God pull them out of that and do incredible things and defeat the Egyptian army and military and pull them into a new place. And now they're in this moment where we're just catching up to where they're spending some years traveling and wandering around the desert surviving but autonomous. They're not enslaved anymore. They're their own nation, but they're still waiting for that great deal of land, right? With some nice waterfront and a good deal and some areas to grow. And what happened is that took some time. So you have this generation that went from slavery, moved out through the Exodus, was delivered, believed and experienced and saw the works of God, and then they're there for a few generations. And then Moses passes on his leadership when he's getting old to a man named Joshua. And then Joshua becomes a leader, and he has a whole new generation to lead up, and they tell the stories about what God had done, and he leads them up, and then Joshua gets a bit older. They're still wandering, and then he passes on his leadership. And then we head into Judges chapter 2, uh, verse 7, and it says this, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They lived a long time back then. And after that generation died generation with Joshua, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and they served images of Baal, false gods. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. So after 430 years of slavery, several generations it took three generations to move from believing, being inspired, having a relationship with God, to knowing about God, to the third generation, didn't know or experience God and abandoned and left him completely. Despite the efforts of their parents, none of the parents, I'm sure, in there, they were well-intentioned. They, they didn't intend for that to happen in just a couple generations. They told the stories. They taught the rituals. They did the practices. They said, here's the things that God did for us. Don't forget it. But... They fell into a trap of thinking that developing faith in the next generation just happens naturally. 
There was a mindset shift that needed to happen that was missed out on, and what it was thought of is simply that I will pass my faith on to you. I will pass my experiences on to you. But the way one pastor, Louis Palau, says, God has no grandchildren, only sons and daughters. So you had one generation experience God, they created a second generation who knew about the first generation's experience of God, and then they created another uh, generation that was so detached, they completely missed it out. For real faith to develop and thrive, every generation must become the first generation. For real faith to develop and thrive, every generation needs to experience God, needs to know God and have a real relationship, not vicariously through their parents or their mentors. That's a good starting point, but they need to have an environment and a community crafted around them to actually know and experience God. And history has a bad tendency of repeating itself. So very recently, there was this massive study done here in Canada. It was just released, and it took a look at youth and young adults in churches all across Canada over the course of about a decade. It's one of the biggest studies we've ever done. And it was specifically looking at, right now, this moment we're in, we have the greatest generational departure from faith and from religion. Uh, Do you know what the stat is for students, children who grow up in church, who are actively involved in groups, who are participants in the faith, they would have, in this survey, identified themselves as being a believer initially and moving into after high school, post-high post school. What is the statistic or the percentage of students who stick with their faith community, stick with their faith practice? Got ideas? 10%. And there is a chance that later on, about of that 10% that stick around, so the 90% take off, of that 90%, about 25% of them may come back naturally. But the biggest thing that the study found, and here's the thing, it's kind of interesting, it wasn't because they didn't have enough big, fun stuff to do. It wasn't because they didn't have enough huge shows and rock concerts. It wasn't because they didn't have enough swag from their churches. The biggest thing that helped students develop a faith that mattered is when they found an identity and a place amongst a faith community that nurtured and supported them in experiencing God on their terms, how they needed. And here's the thing, praise God, that's the church. Or at least it should be. It can be. That is the church. So that's amazing. That's what we're going to be doing this morning a little bit is taking a bit of a dive study into what that can look like. Now, the study, it was absolutely incredible. It was called Renegotiating Faith. 180 pages, a lot of reading, but I do encourage you, if you're just sitting around in this heat and hopefully you've got air conditioning and you just want something to dive into, Renegotiating Faith, free resource with an incredible amount of insight in Canada, which is especially helpful because everything, everything comes from the States, right? All of our data and insight and stories and news. And uh, in terms of faith development, the, we, Canada is about 10 to 15 years ahead of the curve, uh, is estimated in terms of people kind of deconstructing faith and turning away. So there's a lot of insights from this study that really helped us understand how can we shape these communities, these worship gatherings, Sunday morning, youth groups, kid clubs, our faith at home, our faith out on the streets and in the job, how can we help nurture and shape faith in generations underneath us? And what I do want to clarify is everything I'm talking about, when I say next generations, That's a bit of a relative term. I'm not talking about just specifically 10 to 16-year-olds or whatever. I'm talking about if you are at whatever stage of life you're at, you're retired, who's in the life stage before you? 
If you are 12 years old, they're all downstairs, it's going to point to someone. Who's there before you? Who are you influencing? Who is coming after you in life that you can impact and pour down into? So what was fascinating is, of all the insights coming from this study, they resonated a lot with the exact instructions Moses left to Joshua and to the people for how to raise their kids. And we find it in Deuteronomy 6. And they just missed the heart. They missed the application of it. But they heard these words. So we're going to do a bit of an overview of the start of Deuteronomy 6. It's just a book of essentially Moses passing on all the instructions for the Israelite people. Do these things. Practice this way. Here's how you will maintain a relationship with God and move into the land that you've been promised. And what we're going to do is pick up on three key points of how we can shift our hearts and our minds to bringing in and helping the next generations experience faith on their own terms. So Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 4, starts off like this. It's called the Great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. We're going to stop there because that's the first chunk. That's the first piece that we're going to learn about. The Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And keep these commandments on your heart. That's the first step that you need to have as a follower of Jesus to impact the next generations. I love it because you don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to go to a parenting conference every year. You don't need to master all the trends, and this trend is right, and this trend is wrong, and here's how I'm going to do diaper training, and here's how I'm going to do sleep training. You don't need to be a superhero. You don't need to be super cool or relevant, even. You can be a total weirdo and still love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first component you need to develop in your life, in your hearts, in your mind, is to have a faith on fire. What this looks like is it looks like having, and what Moses was getting at is saying, don't participate in a practice with a club and just tick off the boxes. This needs to be something that takes over your life. Your passion for God needs to be something that you wake up in the morning breathing and speaking. Conversations about God and to God happen spontaneously throughout your day. It's not that you have a list of priorities of practice for, I'm going to give this time to God and this time to soccer and this time to my gaming and this time over here to reading. I'm going to do this for work and here. It's actually God on everything, my relationship and my faith to God, and everything fits into that. This is the key to shaping the next generation and especially towards kids because, and here's the thing, I love seeing it, kids have a way of seeing right through our facades and right through whatever fronts we put on, kids have a way of seeing right through to our hearts. And that's what's shaping kids. That's what's shaping the generations underneath you who you're influencing is they're looking at your hearts and they know what's going on. You can fake it and they'll know. So your heart starts, that's the first step. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pretty big commandment but attainable, and that's the way God works. Our God works by coming down to our level of attainable. He doesn't go easy, but he goes attainable. The second part here, Deuteronomy, uh, starting, Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 7. So, impress these commandments, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them up as symbols onto your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Some translations here, mine is the NIV, some translations say, teach these things diligently. 
to your kids and to your children. Diligent, teach diligently. This one's loaded. I'm going to spend some time in here because this is where I think the generation that was leading with Joshua started to stumble a bit. This is where I think we stumble all too often. We get the idea that teaching is a one-directional verb, right? I can tell you what to do, and I have taught. But teaching is really loaded. And for those of you who, who, here who are teachers, you would know, and you do know that teaching happens when something is learned. So if you spew out tons of information, you can be incredibly clear. You can have the best presentations ever. And if the learner doesn't get it, nothing has been taught. You've got to start again. And you have to adapt. And, and this is a huge thing. This looks like sacrificing our expectations, sacrificing how we learn stuff, sacrificing our comforts for the sake of what the generations after us need in order to learn. And, and adapting and observing and working. And this, this can be challenging, but there's an overall principle, I think, that we can use to apply of how can we teach all of these things, the experiences that we've had, how can we teach them? And it is sacrificing our comforts for the sake of the comforts they need. I, I love taking my daughter, who's two, who you saw with in a textbook ADD, just ripping around on the stage and running down. Uh, we go hiking as much as I can. We try to go out once a week. And when I first started taking her in the little backpack, I was inexperienced in packing for myself, who also hasn't been very experienced in carrying an extra 40 pounds on my back when I'm hiking. So all the extra stuff I need and whatnot. But then also having a toddler who gets bored really easy, who needs snacks constantly, who needs a lot of changes of clothes because she wants to play in the mud every time she gets the chance to see it. And, and so there was a hike I did a while back when I was still very inexperienced, and it started raining, and I was very ill-prepared. And so I was getting soaked. She was pretty cranky because it's cold, it's raining, we're kind of getting miserable. I had one little coat windbreaker kind of deal, so here's what I had to do. I, I was uncomfortable, but my goal for this is for Adia to experience the outdoors in a positive and in, impressionable way. So she has a passion and a love for the outdoors. So we get her down, dry her off. I put her in a new change of clothes and I give her my coat. She's kind of, I made a bit of a tent over the backpack and uh, I went on hiking. I was miserable, my comfort was out the window, but that was fine because for her, it was closer to survival and comfort. But for her, her comfort was gonna be monumental to her developing a love and a passion for the outdoors. I have already had my experience from the past where other people likely sacrificed for me in order to experience the outdoors in a powerful way. And this is where even the Apostle Paul says it over and over, don't cause a brother or a sister to stumble because of your expected practices. If you think something has to happen this way and it's causing somebody younger than you to miss God, you've got to give it up. And this goes for everyone. It goes down. It's, it's literally it's like great-grandparents. You've got to give it up for the next generation down. Parents, you've got to take a back seat for your kids. Kids who are getting 10, 11, 12, whatever, you've got to take a back seat sometimes for the youngest as well. Whatever it takes to help build up followers of Jesus. And as we talked about this morning, and Pastor Michael pretty much set the preach up perfect, you could be a follower of Jesus as a toddler. You could be a follower of Jesus as a great-great-grandparent. You could be a follower of Jesus at 40, 50, 60 at any stage, you can't be a follower of Jesus if you don't get the chance to experience God, to experience and have a relationship of Jesus. And then diligently, so teach diligently. 
And this is a piece that I find is going to be the shift as well, is we often think we can add a little bit of teaching in, and that's good enough. And unfortunately, our culture has gotten so compartmentalized, we say, okay, kids go to school, that will be your education. Kids go to Sunday school, that will be your faith education. Kids go to youth group, that's going to save you, right? Man, if I had a, well, you know, inflation, right? So it's not a nickel anymore. Let's go with $5 bill for every time that a parent expected me to be, as a youth pastor, the only faith provider and example for a teenager. I'd have a lot of money, but not enough to buy a house. But that is often the expectation. Can we outsource and compartmentalize the next generation's experience of God? Right? It's, it's efficient, it's industry, it's mass production. But the problem is the gospel goes in the face of whatever we find is normal at work. So it's counterculture in that way. Teach diligently is a task for every single one of us to put, and I love the way one, one author put it here, a disproportionately large priority of time, money, effort, and cultural shaping aim towards younger generations, those who do not currently know Jesus a disproportionately large priority towards younger generations. And that doesn't mean it just fits within. It means it is everything. It means everybody is all on board. And so this is a change in thought. of what it means is we start thinking differently as a church here because this is the church that could be the place to help young people experience God. That's what the design for church is. And what it means is every single thing we think, worship, is not what's my need to worship this morning. It's What's helping Alex worship? Teaching is not, what do I expect to hear this morning? It's like, what would create an opportunity for Trevor to understand something different about God, the way he, he, God's designed him? What would shape differently for some of our toddlers to experience prayer and see prayer for the first time? What would shape Lucas or any of our younger children here to experience God? That's the first question. That's what drives us. These are the questions that should excite us completely and holistically. Everything about church is saying, the next generation down, what's coming after us? Because they're going to point to the next generation coming after us, and this is how the gospel spreads. Deuteronomy 6, verse 12. This is where it wraps up in this instruction. And Moses is telling people, he says, they're going through, and he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the third piece. So the first piece is have faith on fire. Second piece is to teach diligently. Third piece is don't forget God. And in so many ways, but don't forget God in your life. Now, this is the motivation, and, and this is what the second generation lacked, that they could not pass on to the third generation that completely turned a generation away from God. It's one of the things that is often lacking here, too. When you forget that God has worked in your life too. See, with, with the Israelites, what happened is they got to the point after a few generations, they were established. They said, we figured this out. We know how to travel. We know how to set up camp. We can manufacture our own stuff. We can make it happen. We've got a king. We know what's going on. We're doing it fine. And they forgot that God had actually worked in their life, in their family's lives. They brought, God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. All of us here who are followers of Jesus have a testimony story where he, you remember that moment where God has come into your life and pulled you out of sin. That's the salvation message that God offers us away, away from sin, from the bondage and slavery of that. And when we forget it and think that 
that we've got it figured out and we can just teach the stuff we need so you can pass that faith on to the kids. They won't have that experience. This is what's key to every single generation becoming first-generation believers. We need to remember the work, work that God has done for us and we need to remember the positions of life we were in. Because here's the thing, our call to model God's love and grace and passion to the youngest generations among us, it, it, that's how we stay motivated in that teaching diligent work. It all works out from there. And then that teaching diligent work helps us have a faith on fire. Because here's the point, and listen to these words, thank God, literally, thank God that he is patient and pursuing of us even while we remain childish even while we're immature, even while we are unguided and underdeveloped. The good news of Jesus comes to us wherever we were at in our history. The good news of Jesus comes to wherever our kids are at and doesn't wait for us to get up to any sort of bar or level that's out of our reach. God comes to us. And that's the kind of motivation we need to model and pass on to our kids in the same kind of patience and perseverance of saying, man, the music taste you have is awful but I'll be patient because God is patient with it. And if that's what's helping you connect with God, hallelujah, amen. Man, the way you're praying drives me nuts and you don't even read the right translation of Bible anymore. But good grief, you are learning about Jesus Christ in your life. Man, you don't have the same kind of disciplines and you want to do all these things that come out to a church group or the camps or whatever and it costs all sorts of money. Maybe I can put some of my other priorities aside because it is so important to impact the next generation to experience God in this way and God comes to meet them. So as older generations, we come to meet the next generation wherever they're at. We don't wait for them. What was read uh, this morning as the uh, child dedication passage, Mark 10, um, where the people were bringing the children to Jesus, there's a line in there that's so key. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant as the disciples rebuked the kids going away. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God is for who? The perfect Christians, no. People who go to church every single Sunday on time. There's very few of us. Everyone who prays every day in the morning and at night. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God belongs to children or those with faith like children, those with faith who are not focused on the rituals, maybe they don't respect the traditions, but those who run to Jesus, who can follow Jesus fully in their own capacity, the way a toddler can experience Jesus, the way a teenager can experience Jesus, the way a 95-year-old can experience Jesus, and you can follow Jesus in your full capacity. That's a salvation message. And if you're here too, and, and, and you've been part of this stuff, this church stuff for a long time, but you're starting to think, I don't know if I'm that first generation believer. Hopefully this is maybe the plug because it doesn't matter what point you're at in life. There's a stepping on point. There's a start where you can gain that experience. You can start a real relationship with God, not vicariously through your parents or even through your friends. You can become a first generation believer because that's the first step in having a faith on fire and impacting the next generations around us. Because the bottom line is for real faith to develop and thrive beyond just going to church, beyond just having a religious practice you participate in, every generation must become first generation believers and experience God and know God. And so just as we wrap up, there's a couple questions. And uh, for our community groups too, they'll be chatting about this throughout our week. Um, but thinking about in your life, what priorities 
compete in your life with pouring into the next generation? What kind of comforts have you felt like you've had to sacrifice? But then think about that flip it. What kind of comforts were sacrificed for you to experience God for the first time? And if you're wrestling still at that first generation believing challenge, I invite you to come up and chat with me or we'll have some of our leadership team uh, around after the service too. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to tell you what that can look like starting off a relationship with God, starting off that first stepping point with it. But just to wrap up, I pray with me. God, thank you so much for the fact that, God, you come to us wherever we're at. God, childish, immature, doesn't matter. God, you are present for us because your message, your gospel is for that. It's not for a level of perfection. God, you don't expect development out of us for engaging in and experiencing you, God, you come to us. God, I just pray that you help shape our lives, God. Every single person here, every single person joining us online, that we have a focus that pours into the next generations after us. God, that we see that there's a bigger picture at work beyond us. God, it's what's coming next. It's what's coming next. It's what's coming next. And how can we be the conduit of shaping that, God? God, I pray that you just help Help us see opportunities to pour into our children, God. And as we committed to this morning as well to help the children that were dedicated here and all the other children and kids who are downstairs, God, and the teens and just everyone who is a generation after us, God, help us find an opportunity today and this week to pour into and shape them. God, we praise you and we love you and we thank you for all the things that you do for us. We pray these things out loud in in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for this morning, everyone. This is the start of our Next Gen series, and uh, I just do want to end off with the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That is the standard of what God sets and expects of us, no more and no less. Have a great week.